Hello and welcome to the Flyby. We have a lot going on this episode, so let's get started. We are participating in a community event with our friends and partners in the Inside Voices Network. We will soon be starting a Facebook group where we will all be subscribing to the Breakout Games Dispatch Box, and we are encouraging the community to also subscribe by February 15th and join us while we all work our way through the boxes together. If you want more details on what the Dispatch Box is, Charlie reviewed the system in episode 54 of Ding and Dent. Links will be in the show notes, and I'll post more to Twitter, BGG, and Facebook. All right, on with the show. We're off to a deadly start this episode with Stephanie telling tales in the dead of winter. Catherine develops her thoughts about Rajas of the Ganges. It's no sleight of hand. Lindsay really is reviewing Trickerian. Mason follows up a lead that Pulp Detective is going from print and play to Kickstarter, and I finish out the show by shining a light on One Deck Dungeon: Forest of Shadows. So confession time. I am a complete scaredy cat when it comes to horror. It took me four months to stream the first season of American Horror Story, not because I was you know busy or anything, but because I'd get so freaked out after watching an episode that it would take me two weeks to get brave enough to watch another. So why is it that I love horror board games? Maybe it's because my first modern game experience was Arkham Horror. Maybe it's because I can control the narrative for once. Maybe because playing it with all the lights on makes me less worried about being murdered when my guard is down. And maybe it's because there are so many good games exploring things that go bump in the night. And right at the tippity top of my list is Dead of Winter, a crossroads game. Designed by Jonathan Gilmore and Isaac Vega, and released in 2014 by Plathead Games. Dead of Winter is a semi-cooperative game that lets players explore the what-ifs of surviving a zombie apocalypse. Players take on a role in a group of strangers thrown into the most harrowing of circumstances. Characters start in a barely secured building known as the Colony. At the start of the game, a mission is selected, providing a group goal and a number of turns to complete it in. Six locations surround the Colony. And it's up to the survivors to find enough supplies at these locations to help them make it another day, and hopefully they don't encounter some other helpless folks in their search, meaning just some more hungry mouths to feed and more attention from those eager zombies. While there is hope that the fellow survivors are all out to do their best for our struggling colony, there is a possibility of a betrayer in our midst. But even if everyone is on the up and up. Each player has a secret objective that they're working towards. All this creates a lot of tension, and that's before considering the elements, limited supplies, and undead working to break down your doors. At the start of each round, everyone rolls their dice, which players can spend to perform actions such as searching a location for supplies, taking out one of the zombie horde, or building a barricade. And if that wasn't enough. Each round, there's an immediate crisis the group has to mitigate, like supplying extra food or medicine. So, if you're working for the greater good, you spend your time making sure everyone, including you, has what they need when they need it. And if you're not, well, maybe you hoard some resources, telling the group, "Nope, sorry, found no food. So weird." Except, you know, sneakier. But this little game about zombies is about much more than just that. It's about the dynamic of trust and teamwork, about planning ahead for when it all comes down. It's more than just that old zombie trope. There's a story here. 
Dead of Winter also employs a deck of cards known as Crossroads cards. At the start of each player's turn, a crossroad card is drawn by another player. Sometimes this card has an immediate effect. Sometimes it only comes into play when a player takes a certain action. Sometimes it's a decision everyone has to vote on. These cards are what take a fairly simple game with a frequently used theme and makes it something exciting and special. Speaking of special, Dead of Winter has over two dozen characters to play, each with their own strengths and weaknesses. These characters are diverse and unstereotypical and fit the narrative perfectly. Dead of Winter plays two to five players, and I've played it at every player count. I even house-ruled a six-player game once with decent success. I will say that when you get to four or five players, the game can get a little long if you're playing with those who suffer from AP from time to time. But if you play with people who can get into the story and really make some choices each turn, the game stays exciting, and even a five-player game can be played in under 90 minutes. It plays okay as a two-player game, but at that low of a player count, it's much more fun to eliminate the option of a betrayer and just work together for survival. Dead of Winter retails for about 50 bucks, and it's perfectly priced for a game of this weight. For me, Dead of Winter is the ultimate game in the horror genre, and one I keep coming back to time and time again. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Money or points? So many of these games we love ask us to choose. Do we slowly get points all game long? Do we get lots of money, using our purchasing power to get lots of points late? When do we pivot from our pursuit of money to acquire the winning horde of victory points? 2017's Raj of the Ganges, designed by famed designers Inca and Marcus Brand, doesn't ask you to compromise between money and points. It asks you to see yourself as a great noble in 16th century India, along the Ganges River, racing to leverage your personal empire to acquire great wealth or great prestige, or some measure of both. The game board is framed by not one, but two tracks, one for rupees and one for prestige. These two tracks start in the same corner, but run around the board in opposite directions. Player markers run on each track, and the winner is the person who can get their two markers to meet first. Prestige is harder to come by, but moves quickly around the board once scored. Money can be gained or spent in the service of your goals. Both tracks give you small but important tools as you meet certain thresholds like new workers and more dice. In service of these goals, you have a unique hybrid worker and dice placement system. There are ample supplies of four colors of D6 in the game, and you start with one of each. Dice are always rolled when you receive them. On your turn, you will place one of your workers alongside a die on one of many locations on the board. In the palace, you can use a dice of a certain number or color to gain dice or take special actions that propel your game in asymmetric directions. At the docks, you can use small-valued dice of any color to travel along the Ganges, each space offering unique and helpful rewards. At the quarry, you use dice of specific colors and number thresholds to purchase estate tiles. These tiles help complete your own personal estate, earning a wide variety of rewards and helpful tools along the way. Each tile has either one of four building types on it, and as you acquire these tiles, you gain prestige for how renowned you are with this building type. Some tiles have craftsmen on them that help you earn money when you visit the last major area of the game board, the market. All of this is a race. As you alternate taking short, efficient turns, 
you can see each player's two markers inching closer and closer together. Along the way, you attempt to get into a flow, the kind of state where if you time it right, actions ripple, generating addictive combos and rewards that allow you efficient success in the turns to come. And if you don't, you spend turns simply getting dice so that you can get going again. Now, I tend to eschew race games, preferring not to see the win as a foregone conclusion with a quarter of the game left. But Raj of the Ganges does not have that problem. In my 14 plays so far, the last round has always been tense and thrilling with close finishes and unexpected blowouts. We have won by getting rich. We have won by acquiring prestige. And we have won by equally chasing both. Each of these paths to victory can be pursued from multiple directions. The race is always so much fun. I do have two complaints with the game which are directed squarely at the publisher, Hook. These issues were easy fixes during development, and someone should have raised a warning flag or two. First, I can't believe there wasn't more thought and research put into which Hindu god would be depicted in the game. With literally millions of Hindu gods to choose from, the depiction of Kali as a dice-wielding, peaceful, skullless, tongueless goddess was head-scratchingly thoughtless at best. At worst, it's cultural appropriation without respect for the religion. When you choose a theme based on a particular time and place, you have an obligation to pay some respect to that place and time and get it right. Better options include setting the game in a fantasy or futuristic setting instead of a known time and place, or at the very least being super vague about the goddess and not naming her specifically in the rulebook. Second, I am not colorblind, but this game makes me question the validity of that statement. This game is ridiculously difficult for me to distinguish between the green and blue dice. I can't believe that there isn't yet a thread about this on BGG. We had to build a foam court insert for the tiles and dice and label them on the side so that I wouldn't mix up the dice. I wish that they had found some ways to correct for this difficulty, like a specific area on your player board for dice of specific colors. I know that there are many possible solutions that would have made this game possible for more people to play, and I wish that the publisher had chosen to do that. Regardless of these shortcomings, this game is a joy to play, and Inca and Marcus Brand unsurprisingly have built a winner yet again. Happy gaming, all! This is Catherine Harmon, and you can find me at Cat Library on BGG or at Kybrarian on Twitter, both with a K. Hi everyone, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to reveal a few thoughts on Tricarium, designed by Richard Amann and Victor Peter, published by Man Clash Games, with artwork by Velo Farkas and Leslo Fajes. It's a 2-4 play game with a 60-180 minute duration. I saw so much of Tricarium in 2015, I didn't know much about it, except it looked really cool. In terms of theme, very much up my street, I've always been into Victoriana and magic. But in 2015, I still didn't really understand Kickstarter or what it was about, so I kind of dismissed it. And of course, by the time I realised that Kickstarter was a perfectly safe and legit platform, I'd finally got to grips with it. It seemed like everybody's planned Tricarium but me and it was no longer in stock in the UK. But late last year, I saw a picture posted to somebody's Instagram and thought, you know, I'll have another shop around for it. And this time I found it on an online store called Element Games and decided I'd get it as a holiday gift to myself because I got the fear, the fear you may know well of, I must get this game before it's too late. In Tricarian, you play through five rounds in the standard game and start off a set amount of workers, including an engineer, a magician, an assistant. First and foremost, you designate your workers with your cards on your player board, then take your workers to various chosen locations on the board, such as the marketplace to buy components for your tricks, downtown to buy new tricks and recruits, the workshop to assemble your tricks, 
at the theatre to prepare and perform. The final phase is the performance and if any of your magicians are in the theatre, you score points and do some maintenance, pay your workers, then go to the next round. I was thinking about maybe playing it a little bit more before talking about it, but I'll come to the conclusion that it'll probably never be a right time. It's a big game, it's a bit of a setup. it does require a lot of concentration and it's definitely not a casual game or one that I play a few nights a week or anything. It's definitely a game that you play, you think you've got, you start to make progress in your knowledge and ability, then you don't play for another 10 days and you're back to square one again. If I had nothing but time and energy, I wish I could play more often so that wouldn't be the case. But either way, it's still a great game to tackle when I feel able. And it really is a very good game. Like many heavy strategy games, there isn't a huge amount to it in terms of how to play. There's a lot of fiddly aspects, a lot of symbols to memorise and so much to plan. It really is a heavy worker placement game. I've always liked worker placement. It was one of the first genres I explored when I started tabletop board gaming. But it does feel like I've played, once I've played a few, if there isn't something there to stand apart, they feel like much of a muchness. And Tricarian is the most challenging worker placement game I've played. We did play it once with a standard game and immediately cranked it up a notch uh, using the Dark Alley expansion. This is played on the other side of the board. It gives you seven rounds instead of five. It also allows you to build your hand of cards further. I'll use those cards for extra Tricarian stones, which bolsters your quantity of actions, and that comes in ludicrously helpful at times. Dark Alley also uses predictions of a Zoltai-type character to modify dice rolls in the downtown area. The game can be quite punishing if you fall behind. In one particular game, I had a not-so-great round with not very much gain, the other player had an amazing round and then it just became possible for me to catch up. But the solution for that is pretty straightforward and one I must remember going forward. Always have amazing rounds. Tricarian is definitely a game that burns slowly. It does take a couple of rounds at least for that momentum to pick up. By the time you're almost halfway through, you feel like you've only just about achieved something. But when you do, you find it coming together. But I just wish, as in most worker placement games, there was a little more time to achieve your goals. So it's an engine builder in some respects. You assemble your workforce, you gather your parts to perform your tricks, and as you gain more fame, you can buy the real amazing, powerful tricks that will earn you further wealth and fame. So it's thematic as well. The worker placement is tough. The choices you make are agonising, and you have to be, make very educated decisions. It's hard because it's not just the case of put the worker there and do the thing. Because the thing, like purchasing materials, for example, requires a certain quota to get what you need, and that's where it gets fiddly. So Tricarian has a lot going on, and I do love the theme. I immediately wanted to watch documentaries on performance magic and its origins. It really is this fantastical world that I feel like I'm part of when I'm playing Tricarian, and the tricks are just so cool, and the artwork on the cards is beautiful. It is a large setup, but not too painful, and definitely not as hefty as Anachrony, which is another beautiful Mind Clash giant. I never did get around to discussing or reviewing Anachrony because I just didn't get enough plays to constitute one. But from the games I did play, I think I prefer Tricarion. It just has a bit more of the wow factor for me. There's also an expansion called Darklard's Gifts that gives you a significant amount of additional cards and abilities and also includes a rules variation, especially for two players, which is really cool. So if you like your worker placement game super sized and you like your brain to burn and the theme is one that makes your eyes light up, puts the fire in your heart, then do it. If you're time poor and don't think you get used to the game, you're probably right. But if you're powered by coffee and desire to push yourself beyond your gaming capabilities, then definitely go for it. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram or YouTube, shinyhavemeeples, or pop on my website, shinyhavemeeplesco.com, or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples, Co. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Pulp Detective. First things first, I am not, as you know, a Kickstarter project previewer, but Pulp Detective is a game that I've been passionate about for the last two years, and I'm very excited that the campaign is finally here, which is why I'm talking about it on this week's episode. 
Pulp Detective is a solo noir investigation game from designer, graphic artist, woodworker, poet, and my friend, Todd Sanders. You may know Todd from some of his other games, They Who Were Eight, Mr. Cabbage Head's Garden, or even The Draeger. Todd designs contemplative, introspective, and thoughtful hobby games. I've described Todd's work in the past as complexly subtle and subtly complex, and I think that Pulp Detective lives up to that. In Pulp Detective, you're navigating the world of classic American detective fiction. Think Raymond Chandler, Dorothy Hughes, Jim Thompson, Patricia Highsmith, or Dashiell Hammett. You're drawing cards, deciding which clues and leads to follow, and rolling dice trying to match the symbols on the investigation cards. Uncover clues and find informants, good things happen. Fail, and you'll lose the thread of the case, costing you time and stamina. You only have 24 hours to solve each case, and time marches relentlessly forward in Pulp Detective. No matter what, you're going to lose an hour every turn, and the ticking clock really gives Pulp Detective a sense of dread and tension that I think is uncommon in a solo game. Be prepared that Pulp Detective is extremely difficult. The game is not a casual resource management solo experience. You're not trying to beat your own high score, you are always hanging by a thread. I've played it about a dozen times, and I've only ever won once, and that was on the beginner level. There are eight different investigators to choose from, and they each have a slightly different special ability. Some will let you roll an extra die, get extra information, or use the symbols you roll as wilds. The custom dice are at the heart of gameplay in Pulp Detective. Each has a different distribution of symbols on it, and a lot of the strategy is about deciding which die to re-roll and when to do it. I've been using regular D6s in my print-and-play copy for about six months, but the preview prototype I received came with a beautiful set of custom dice. They feel great, roll well, are very clearly printed and super easy to read. The other major part of Pulp Detective is, of course, the cards. At the beginning of every turn, you're going to draw three cards and look at their backs. You have to decide which to discard, which to shuffle back in, and which to play in front of you. The backs are all marked with the card types, informants, leads, and cliffhangers, each of which gives you a different reward and each of which require different kinds of dice results. Most likely, once you've discarded a card, you probably won't see it again, so you have to make some careful choices or you can end up on the wrong path with no real hope of survival. Of course, you won't know that until it's far too late for you to do anything about it. All the art in Pulp Detective is cleverly reused from classic crime paperbacks from the 40s and 50s, but because Todd is an excellent graphic designer, the cards are really clear and easy to read. All the information you need is accessible while still allowing all the great art to stand front and center. I think it's too often the case with a theme like noir to rely on lazy generalizations and half-remembered one-dimensional tropes. See basically every game about gangsters ever. But in Pulp Detective, Todd's literary knowledge and love for classic crime fiction is more than evident. I personally am a huge fan of both Dashiell Hammett and Jim Thompson, and playing this game really feels like reading a noir thriller. Mechanically and visually, Pulp Detective is just a pitch-perfect and, I think, deeply thoughtful synthesis of crime novels. I've mostly just played the base game, but there's a lot of other content for Pulp Detective. The Double Cross expansion adds special events, and the Sidekicks and Masterminds expansion adds assistance and some very difficult baddies. I'm nowhere near ready to add this content in until I get better and can actually win some more games of Pulp Detective, but I do think that all the extra stuff should keep the game fresh for a long time. There are also some two-player variants in the rulebook for both co-op and competitive play, as well as an option to build a storyline-style tableau with your investigation cards. Personally, I love how compact Pulp Detective is on the table, so I've only tried any of the variants once. Pulp Detective launches on Kickstarter on February 1st, 2018, but we'll put a link in the show notes for you. If you follow me on Twitter, I'll also be tweeting about it a lot, because like I said, it's a project I'm really excited about for a game I really love. So who should buy Pulp Detective? People who like difficult solo games. People who don't mind a bit of chance. People who want a quick, medium-weight, weeknight solo experience. And people who absolutely love classic crime fiction. I give Pulp Detective 10 out of 10 kidnapped millionaires rescued from the mob by Velda Scott, private investigator. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. 
initially heard of One Deck Dungeon during their kerfluffle over their first Kickstarter. As a group of dead-enders complained that the all-female and inclusive character deck was pushing the social justice warrior agenda too far. And if there's one thing guaranteed to pique my interest, it's pushing the social justice warrior agenda. So I backed the game on the spot. The play looked interesting, but the fantastic art by Will Pitzer really sealed the deal. And then, shortly after receiving my copy, I heard Esmati Games was kickstarting a sequel with an updated rulebook. Well, I backed that too, despite not playing the first game. Knowing that an updated rulebook and a playmat was coming was enough for me to wait, and I'm glad I did. In one deck dungeon Forest of Shadows, you are dungeon diving either solo or with a friend. Each player chooses their character class, Alchemist, Hunter, Druid, Slayer, Warden, or Kaliana, and then picks the appropriate side for one or two players. Each character is slightly different in what dice they can roll for encounters. It's a minor difference, but can really affect how well you do in certain dungeons or against certain encounters. For a more basic D&D style understanding, these are your stats. But in addition to different stats, each character has a feat that they can perform at the start of each encounter and a skill that they can use. These are what really sets the characters apart, as their abilities are used pretty much every turn. To proceed with the game, you choose the dungeon you wish to explore. Dungeons are rated easy, medium, and hard. You literally have one deck of cards that is the dungeon you are exploring. You lay out four doors and then flip the doors one at a time and either deal with the encounter or run away. Exploring and opening doors costs time, which is handled through flipping cards from the draw deck into the discard. So even though you'll eventually learn most every card in the deck, you'll never know which ones you'll face, as many are discarded as time. If you choose to face an encounter, then you roll the dice your character has symbols for and use them to fill the boxes both on the dungeon levels and for the encounter. It honestly took me a little to understand the system, but once I got it, I thought it was pretty brilliant in how straightforward it is. It is very easy to see what encounters you stand a chance at surviving and which you should run away from. There's no penalty for running away other than you have wasted two time, and I suppose eventually you could lock up your whole dungeon with encounters that you can't handle, as you can never have more than four cards in front of you at any time. But strategically, it's sometimes a wise choice to put off an encounter until later. If you choose to face an encounter, then you roll the dice and use your abilities and available potions to manipulate them to best fill all the boxes. If you can't fill them all in, that's okay. You'll just have some penalties like extra time spent, poison, or wounds. Assuming you don't meet or exceed your allowed wound total, you always win every encounter on the very first round. Often I'll go into an encounter knowing I won't fill all the boxes if I think the reward is worth it. If you survive, you take the encounter card and use it to improve your character by increasing the number of dice they can roll, giving them a new skill, a new potion, or using the points for experience to work on reaching the next level. Leveling is useful as it gives you the option to have additional items and skills, but I rarely level up before I've maxed out my items and skills for my current level. Once you reach the end of the deck, you descend to the next level of the dungeon. To make the next level more difficult, on each encounter you will not only have to fill in the boxes for the dungeon level you are currently on, but for each previous level as well. You should really level up your character at least one level before descending to the next dungeon. At least, that's my goal. If you have survived the third level, you now face the big boss monster of this dungeon, who is conveniently on the back of the dungeon level card. The boss fight is the only fight that takes multiple rounds, but the combat is mostly the same. If you win, you have successfully completed the dungeon. If not, well, you get to try that dungeon again. But either way, you get the points you've earned and you can apply them to a campaign mode to unlock new abilities for that character. I played a campaign with two characters, and to do it you have to enjoy the grind, as without a through story it can get a little repetitive but you'll need to do it to get enough abilities to really stand a chance at the harder dungeons. 
So I played one deck dungeon at two-player with my six-year-old son, and he has really enjoyed it. I feel the game is a bit easier two-player because between the characters you can reach a better balance of available dice to roll, and two characters get more items and skills between them than one character does. Though it does also take more cards out of the deck so subsequent dungeon levels are reached faster. There is an option for four-player if you own two decks, but without an easy way to split the decks again, I don't think I would personally try this. Having gotten the hang of One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows, I have gone back and played the basic One Deck Dungeon, and while I enjoy it, I think Forest of Shadows is a little bit better, but maybe that's just in my head, as that's the first one I played. Either way, I'm certainly glad that I took a chance on this game. I may be a Eurogamer, but I've always liked the idea of a quick and fun dungeon dive without all the overhead of something like Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, which I also like, but I'm much more likely to break out One Deck Dungeon for a quick solo game. Anyway, that's One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows, a game I like so much I'm going to give away a copy to a lucky listener. All you have to do is tweet at 5bygames or reply to the episode post on Facebook tell me what your favorite character class is from either the original One Deck Dungeon or from Forest of Shadows, and I'll pick one entry at random and mail a copy of One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows with a playmat to the winner, wherever they live in the world. Good luck, and one entry per person, please. If you'd like to discuss One Deck Dungeon further, you're more than welcome to reach me on Twitter, at MikeRizzly. Thanks for listening to The 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.